Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. I thought it might be interesting, low this afternoon, to talk a little bit, just a little bit, about some of the challenges that I faced sort of Sunday through Tuesday in uh, a state situation or state society. I have a general theory, which I've never seen validated anywhere, that the amount of actual value that is being transferred in any given economic transaction under the aegis of the power of the state or within the power of the state, that the actual value that is changing hands is pretty minimal. And again, I don't have any sort of particular statistics, but just off the top of my head, I'll run through a few of those, and then I'll talk about how I think that they affected me when I was traveling to New York and back. So the first thing, of course, is I go to buy a car, right? I go to buy a car. Let's say the car is $20,000. Well, of course, in order to we'll just use simple Canadian-style tax uh, situations here, it's around 50% uh, that I'm being taxed, a little bit less, but then it's all, you know, lots of uh, goods and services taxes as well. So in order to buy a $20,000 car, I have to earn $40,000 of salary, of course, right? So... Uh, immediately, I have to pay off uh, the government at the rate of twice the purchase price uh, just to uh, have the right to be able to buy the car, right? So that's sort of the numero uno of uh, situations in which the government is uh, subtracting an enormous amount of value, in this case, 50% from the actual transaction. Now, I'm aware, you know, that I drive the road to, to the road to get to the car dealership and there's some uh, in that as well, but we're just talking in sort of general in general terms. Now, the price of the car is twenty thousand dollars, and what that means is that if everyone's getting taxed at fifty percent, then you know more or less, give or take, in in rough approximation, the car is worth. Um, I have to pay twice for the car what it is worth, because I have to pay, of course. A twenty thousand. Sorry, I have to pay twenty thousand dollars to the government to buy a twenty thousand dollar car, and the car's price is also composed of the amount of money that uh, has to be uh, put into uh, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the salaries of the people who are employed at the plant, so that they can pay their taxes. Right. So some guys making twenty grand. Uh, sorry, some guy makes forty grand a year. Then twenty grand of that has to be paid uh, to the government so that he can work. But the so no, he's only adding twenty thousand dollars a year worth of value to the cars that he produces. But he's adding forty thousand dollars of costs to the car, uh, to the value of the car that he produces. Uh, sorry, to the car price that he produces. So basically, I'm paying the government twenty thousand dollars, and I'm paying roughly fifty percent of the price of the car to the manufacturer so that the manufacturer can keep $10,000, right? So just at a very sort of approximate level, uh, I pay half of the price of the car to the government in order to have the right to not get uh, buggered up the ass by my cellmate. And then what happens is half of the value of the car is also taken from me by the uh, manufacturer of the car so the manufacturer will be able to pay the, uh, the income tax uh, of the employee's that he or she is uh, is hiring. So, you know, right away, I'm basically paying 
$30,000 of government overhead to buy a $10,000 car. So we have an immediately 75% of the uh, the price. Uh, you know, this is overly simplified, I understand that, but, you know, just go with me for the sake of illustration. 75% uh, of the cost is total bullshit, right? It's just a ripoff, right? So <laughs> what would it mean uh, to, uh, to, uh, to me to be able to buy a car for $10,000 rather than um, then $40,000. Well, uh, I think, sorry, I think I started with the 20000 I think you get the, uh, you get the general idea. So uh, from that standpoint, uh, is, it, um, uh, is it unreasonable to sort of think that there's an enormous amount of um, lag in the realm of uh, economic growth uh, based on the fact that um, it's three quarters of the price of any sort of significant consumer good is being swallowed up by this sort of statist uh, overhead, so to speak. Well, I think that that's a pretty significant drag on the economy, and of course it is a massive overhead. Now, we're just talking about the overhead in terms of the income tax, that three quarters of the price of a car, 20 grand straight to the government, and double the price of the car so that the employer can pay the income taxes of the employees. That's just sort of one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, situations that's occurring as far as uh, predation goes from the consumer in the realm of, uh, uh, of uh, purchasing. Uh, of course, when I go to buy a car, I pay an extra sort of 8%, I think, or 7%, some damn figure now, uh, to the government for the uh, pleasure of being able to buy the car, which, and th that's off the total, right? That's off the total. So we've gone from sort of 75% um, and there's a, uh, another sort of uh, um, uh, increase, right, in terms of the overhead, right, that has to be charged. There's another, and I would just say in Canada it's combined sort of 14 or 15 percent. It's sort of fluctuated a little lately. Let's just make it 10 percent for the sake of sort of ease, right? So we've gone from 75 percent uh, bullshit uh, state violent overhead to 85 percent. And why? Well, because I have to pay 10 percent of tax, uh, value-added tax, or we call it the goods and services tax and provincial sales tax, on the car. So now, 75% of the car, which is extorted blood money, has now gone to 85%, right, which makes it even worse. Now, we can also assume that the $20,000 that I have to pay that the manufacturer actually gets a hold of, sorry, the $40,000 that I have to earn, $20,000 I have to pay, that half of the money that the person um, that the guy has to uh, uh, has to uh, the guy who's selling me the car has to disperse to his employees and so on that those employees also are demanding higher salaries in order to offset the 10 percent value-added tax that they have to spend on everything that they buy which means that their salary demands are higher right so 10 percent will knock it in half and we'll just say that that's another five percent so right now we've gone from 75 percent to 85 percent because of my sales tax and then we're going to put another 5% on because I have to pay the sales tax plus salary demands for all of the employees of the manufacturer, right? So right now we're at 90%, right? 90% bullshit price based on uh, the fact that I have to pay all these overheads. Now, you're going to tell me, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say, that I'm paying 50% in my set tax bracket, but the percentage that is being paid for by people in lower tax brackets, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's all well and good. I understand that. 
And so uh, that's fine. We can sort of knock that down a little bit. If you want to knock it down from 90% to 80%, that's fine. Uh, that's fine by me. Because then we have old age pensions, unemployment insurance, and so on, which again are all subtracted from the employees' wages and mean that, of course, they wish to gain more salary in order to cover up the holes that the government stuffs into their uh, paychecks, which means that, again, the price of the car has to rise. Not only am I getting that pay uh, deducted in, um, over and above the income tax, but all the other deductions that occur, but so is the employees. Everyone that I'm, uh, uh, I'm uh, hiring uh, also has that same issue. Now, let's look at another uh, issue that uh, we have uh, taxes on corporations, right? Because the government loves a hidden tax and hates an open tax. That's why deduction at source and uh, taxes built into the price and so on are all such a juicy and lovely thing. They just don't like them when there's exporting to be done, right? They don't want to tax. They want to tax at destination rather than at source when there's exporting to be done to keep the prices low for going overseas so that they can then tax the money going overseas, right? That's why. <laughs> I mean, that's why these things come into being. But if we then sort of look at the uh, the corporate tax that the employer has to pay before he gets around to paying all of his uh, employees, and corporate tax is generally paid upon, paid upon um, gross earnings, um, oh, sorry, gross profits, uh, net, net uh, uh, expenses minus uh, gross uh, gross revenue, and so that's another, and it ranges 20%, 30%, and so on. But again, that's all money that the manufacturer has to get out of my hide as the consumer, right? Which is, and this, the math gets complex. I'm not even going to bother. But, um, you know, it's going to add another couple of points, I would say, between 5 and 10, but who knows, right? I would even add a large number of points to, um, uh, to, the, uh, to the price of the car and to the sort of subtract from the actual, tangible, real, honest-to-goodness value that is being handed uh, back and forth between myself and whoever is actually uh, making and selling this car. So that's sort of another aspect uh, that's occurring. You could get into some pretty excruciating minutiae in this kind of analysis, and perhaps there's someone out there who's done it. I've never heard of it, though I sure would be very interested to have a look at it. But I think we'd actually be shocked and horrified, you know, when we consider ourselves... Uh, even remotely free, or we consider the system under which we work a sort of free market system, I think we'd be actually pretty shocked at how much, uh, when we actually go and buy something, how much value is actually just passing between us and the people who create it, right, without this massive nine-tenth state-sucking leech violent overhead that occurs in this kind of, uh, of environment. So I just sort of wanted to to mention that there's about a bazillion things that you could put in uh, otherwise, you could put in the accumulated cost of national debts. Uh, you could put in the um, the expense of interest rates that are uh, either artificially low due to state sanction or are high because the government is hoovering up all of the ex excess capital and thus raising the price of capital for everyone else in the form of interest rates and so on. But basically, I think that if you really sort of did a drill down, right, you would find that, you know, you think you're peeling a banana, but actually your banana is like the size of a toothpick inside all of this skin, right? The actual value that is being transferred uh, among people or between people in this kind of environment is pretty significant. Uh, sorry, the, the amount of value is pretty insignificant. The amount of overhead is enormous. It is by far the majority of economic transactions that occur to, uh, for us are being stolen from us in one form or another. And I know you can deduct things like the roads and the water and other sort of the social services, uh, the uh, 
utility services and so on that the government provides, and that's all fine, and that's going to subtract a certain amount from the uh, income. But, of course, we have no idea what the world looks like in these realms in the absence of government intervention. So you don't say, well, the government pays whatever water per, you know, whatever amount of money per kilowatt hour, and that's what we would pay. No, of course, that wouldn't be the case at all. There would be significant alternatives to that in a free market situation. So it's really impossible to know uh, how much we can actually count on the value of what the government provides to subtract it from the whole. But I'll tell you this, you know, the reason that this is important to understand is that, you know, a lot of us are broke. A lot of us are going in the hawk, right? I mean, the, the savings rate in um, America is down below 1%. You know, it's sort of crashed dramatically over the past 20 or so years. The savings rates for China, the Chinese uh, economy, they're saving between 10 and 20%, right? So it's a pretty significant divergence uh, in savings rates. And why is that important? Well, of course, savings is the magic garden from whence groweth uh, capital loans to uh, to businesses, right? So you basically make money from a capital investment in your business, in some sort of a process or productivity improvement. In order to make that investment, you have to have excess capital in the form of savings that is distributed by banks or venture capitalists or whatever to uh, sort of pinpoint and rifle shoot the highest profit opportunities. So when people, uh, they stop at the saving, then what happens is people, they stop at the investing. And what that means, of course, is that the uh, rate of uh, capital uh, investment goes down considerably. Capital becomes more expensive. It's one of the reasons why the Fed has kept the rate so low. But, of course, the Fed has kept the rate so low, and capital investment is, is low enough in, in industry and so on, that uh, what's happened is that uh, people have simply started speculating in real estate rather than investing in actual productivity improvements. Um, again, total bullshit, bad for the economy, ridiculous waste of resources. All this capital's tied up in these crappy loans with no principal, with no sort of down payment that people can't afford the moment the interest rates change, which, you know, they're going to do, and I would say in a relatively short order, again, going way out on the economic prediction limb, which has fallen under many a better mind than I. Uh, I would say that the early indications that the Chinese are no longer interested in uh, buying U.S. Uh, dollars, buying U.S. futures in the form of treasury bonds is uh, sort of significant, right? The, the black market and the gray market has already switched to euros and other currencies in the U.S. dollar. Because, I mean, this was inevitable. The moment that the Fed stopped pub printing the uh, uh, money supply rates, everybody knew that financial shenanigans were about to ensue with nary a giggle in sight at the, out at the end of it. So uh, what's happening, of course, is people are stopping uh, buying the uh, U.S. dollars, which lowers the demand for the uh, U.S. dollar, uh, which means that uh, you have to provide higher interest rates in order to get people to buy the U.S. dollar in the form of treasury bonds, which means that you siphon more money out of the capital market. It also means that people on variable rate mortgages end up having to pay more for their houses, which means that there's a crush in housing, which means that the expensive houses go down in price, but the houses a layer or two down, which people are selling out of the expensive houses to get into the medium-priced houses, those housing prices go up, which means people, they fall down the ladder, right? It's like you, the top ladder breaks, and then the weight of your demand breaks the next ladder and the next, the next rung and the next rung and the next rung, and you fall all the way down to who knows where. But it's a pretty significant crash. Uh, what it will do, of course, is it will release a lot of pent-up capital currently stored up in uh, bullshit mortgages and release some of that for uh, more investment from a wider context. But um, 
Yeah, so I just sort of wanted to talk about, just before I got into the, the, the lengthier topic, oh, oh, I can feel your excitement already. Ooh, more talk about capital markets. Well, uh, the lengthier topic is, is uh, a little bit, it's sort of more personal detail about the experiences that I had and talked about in New York with regards to uh, state interference. But, you know, we're all getting poorer. We're all running heavily into debt. Uh, I'm a stingy bastard, so I'm not so bad that way. I hate spending money. Um, it's uh, the legacy of growing up broke, right? So uh, Christina's loosened my sphincter a little bit on that, but uh, it's still not the easiest thing in the world for me to do. But uh, most people are getting poorer because, of course, either through hidden uh, or uh, either through sort of um, uh, hidden or overt means, explicit or implicit means, you know, more and more of your uh, of your money is being stolen from you, right? And, of course, the only reason we're not totally broke is because there's been a large amount of industrialization in other parts of the world. So we're not broke as a culture, as a country, because of China and India and sort of Vietnam and, and other places like that where industrialization is occurring. And in the sort of Asian continent, like 150,000 people a day are moving from the lower class to the middle class. A day, right? Of course, you don't hear about anything about that in the socialist worker, and you certainly don't hear anything about that when people are interested in reducing poverty. But, you know, the economic power of a decadent, late, overregulated, hyper uh, atrophied uh, kind of economy that we have here is uh, in sort of the West is, uh, I mean, the power sort of shifts away, right? The Visigoths of the East, so to speak, are starting to get a control of more of the world's capital because, you know, we're just, uh, you know, we're vampires running out of victims over here and their vampires and victims uh, ratio is uh, a lot better than ours. So, so I just sort of wanted to talk about, you know, the reason it's important to understand why you're sort of slowly getting poorer. It's just, you know, there's less and less of your money going into the pockets of the people who produce stuff that you want and vice versa. There's this, you know, the amount of overhead is absolutely staggering. When you sit down and calculate it, I mean, you know, we think, oh, I'm being taxed at 50%. But, you know, the, the sort of implicit tax, which is you having to pay the tax of everyone along the whole value chain, that's the supply chain of of sort of raw material to finished good that you're consuming, you have to pay the taxes and, and corporate profits, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, corporate taxation and uh, overheads and all, and unemployment and security and health benefits and so on. Uh, you have to pay all of that, and all of that is, in you know, uh, in enormously more expensive because of, uh, everyone has to continually pay everyone else's taxes. So, you know, I, w I would strongly suspect that if you, st and this is not even counting things like the, uh, the hyper-priced union supports that go in because governments have uh, taken money from unions and in return given them immunity from prosecution, the right to run closed shops, and, uh, and forced union dues uh, at whatever rate they want. So even if you don't, uh, uh, you know, we can bypass all of that stuff, which could go on and on, the massive amounts of time that people spend stuck in traffic jams and waiting in government waiting rooms like uh, hospitals and doctors and so on, which, of course, at some point has productivity hits. A lot of that stuff is done during the workday, interferes with people's productivity. So we're not even going to count all of that softer stuff, which has a very real impact. But the amount of money that's actually going on between you, like we're not even remotely a free economy anymore. That's why I find these statements by people like Mark Stein to be just so amazing that you know, we're, we're a free market and other people aren't. It's just astounding. Because, uh, you know, we're 90% communist, right? I mean, uh, we're 80, 90% communists. And again, if I've done something wrong in the math, let me know. This is sort of what makes sense to me. And I wish some economists would actually talk about the amount of money that's uh, being uh, uh, ending up going from the consumer to the producer's hands without state interference. But I bet you it's in the pennies per dollar. And uh, really quite fascinating when you think about, you know, even if we take it at 80%, right? Even if we just took it at 80%, right? Then that's a $40,000 car that should only be $8,000,
right? It means people would be five times richer, right? Five, boom, five-fold increase in people's income. You don't think that would solve the problem of poverty? Of course it would. Of course it would. It's just that we're not allowed to talk like that, right? Because we're supposed to, you know, sit down and shut up and keep paying off the people with the guns. But anyway, so I hope you get the idea behind that. I think it's a very interesting thing to mull over. And if there's people out there who know of studies about this kind of stuff, I certainly would be fascinated to hear about it. But, uh, uh, you know, this is why we're all getting poorer, right? I mean, this is, this is the, why we're no longer a free market system. There's just some uh, vestigial free market mechanisms left, right? Or rather, everybody's, you know, it's, uh, we're all got anvils on our backs, but at least the race is even to some degree because everyone has anvils on our back. Oh, wait, except the people who have friends in the, uh, uh, in the politicians. But I'm going to sort of run through a quick inventory of the kind of things that I noticed in New York. Uh, so, of course, uh, I mentioned in a, two podcasts ago that I was hoping to blame the state for my flight delay. Turns out it was, uh, and I thought I couldn't. Well, it turns out that it was perfectly just to blame the state uh, for what happened uh, to me uh, leaving Toronto. The reason that my flight was like 45 minutes late, as I found out later from a colleague who left earlier, was that there were a grand total of four, count them four, uh, immigrations uh, and uh, um, customs officials uh, working the floor, and so a couple of hundred people lined up. Uh, four people, you know, five, ten minutes a uh, person, you get the math. Uh, so what happened was my outbound plane was heavily delayed because they had to basically re- hold back all the planes because nobody was through customs, and therefore when it came, it was flying back much later as well. So that's one of the reasons why I was late uh, getting to uh, to New York. And then when I got to New York, and of course, let's not even talk about the airfare, where 50% or more was uh, a load of bullshit state charges and 9-11 security fees and airport improvement fees and all this bullshit like people don't pay taxes already. But uh, we won't even talk about that, right, because that, that, that's over and above, right? So right there, i got to pay 50% to have the money for a $500 ticket to New York. i got to make $1,000 in my pay, or the company does. And then, um, right, and half of that then goes into all these other fees. So basically, I'm paying the airline uh, 25%, uh, uh, right? So the actual transaction that's occurring between us, even at that level, is 25%, not in counting all the other bullshit they have to go through. But um, uh, so then I, I get on the plane, and um, what happens? Well, because, uh, you know, gasoline prices due to inane state policies have gotten so bad, uh, basically, airlines can't afford to give you anything. Like in Europe, it's not so bad, right? Um, and uh, so in Europe, you can actually, like, a, you know, in an hour flight, you'll get a full meal, right? Uh, I got a, you know, half a glass of pop uh, on, this, uh, on this flight. Uh, I land in New York, and of course, everything's slow. Uh, government's running the air traffic control system. Everything's slow. We're sit- sitting on the runway for a while. Again, this is all time um, that I have to spend uh, getting... Uh, uh, you know, we've, we're not even counting like the stuff, the traffic jams on the way to the airport, customs nonsense going through the airport, all of this other state apparatus. We just sort of talk about this. I could go on and on, right? But I'll try and keep this relatively succinct. I'll talk about the stuff that may not be immediately obvious. So then I get to New York and I get a cab relatively quickly, and the cab fare is forty-five dollars, and I have to pay another twelve dollars in uh, tolls, right? So. Why is the cab fare so expensive? Well, obviously, there's this bullshit price of gas uh, from the state. But, of course, the major reason, as I was talking about when I was chatting with the cab driver, is that um, uh, the, the, the license plate for a taxi cab in New York City runs about $220,000 U.S., right? So, basically, the price of a decent house in a small town, uh, you get uh, people don't shoot you then if you drive a cab, right? That's what you pay off to the people so they won't shoot you when you drive a cab. 
And so, of course, that has to be paid off somehow. Right? People take out mortgages, this guy said. I was talking with the cab driver. These people take out mortgages like they're buying a house. And, of course, they have to pay that off every month. They have to extract that from the hide of their um, of their customers. And so that's why it's 45 bucks and then another 12 bucks that has to pay for the road. And why, as a non-New York resident, I should have to pay for New York roads? Why? Well, it's because I don't vote. Right, So that's why they put a lot of tolls out by the airport, and that's why they like to put uh, hotel taxes in towns, because it's mostly foreigners, like non-town residents, who, uh, who pay for that stuff. So it's a perfect shakedown, and everyone thinks they're getting a great deal. Uh, but, of course, it's nonsense, because uh, everything that we incur as a travel expense in business, we just have to pass along in higher prices of products. There is no free lunch, and, of course, every, every time other people then go to other towns, everyone's got the same asshole idea that would charge all these people out of town to keep our tax rates low. It's nonsense. It doesn't work at all. But uh, so then I, I get to my hotel, and uh, my hotel is very expensive, but that's fine. It's New York. I'm not even going to talk about that. But um, uh, the cab driver was also telling me this is a, a, an interesting story just about how people's lives get screwed up by state actions. So he's from Haiti, right? So, of course, Haiti is a nightmare voodoo death squad country where uh, Aristide and all these other uh, uh, dictators have sort of daisy chained through uh, stomping on the population's kidneys for the past, I don't know, a couple of thousand years and where uh, every U.S. Uh, uh, intervention that you can imagine has been staged in one form or another. So this guy, of course, fled Haiti, right? So he's already running from one government, come to another government, and uh, he uh, works very hard, saves up $60,000, which is a pretty significant amount for a cab driver, as you can imagine. He had to pay tax and all of that to get that money into the bank. And then what does he do? Well, he uh, decides to buy a cab license. So he goes out and drops uh, his money as a down payment on the cab license, and he uh, ends up... Um, uh, you know, he's going to work for the next 10 or 20 years or however long it was going to be to pay off this cab license. Unfortunately, he does this in July of 2001, you know, a couple of months before the September 11th attacks. Uh, nobody comes to New York. His business drops off. Uh, he ends up being unable to pay the mortgage on his cab license, which is a bullshit status invention to begin with. And then uh, he loses uh, his cab license and he loses his life savings. Um, so he was uh, he had to pay for all of this because of state activities and then people attack New York because of state activities this is kind of the jerk around scenario that people get stuck in their lives they're just stuck running around chasing their own tails because the regulations keep changing state actions producing unpredictable results and so people end up I mean this is purely money that's siphoned out given to some some jerk and of course the government takes its piece of flesh for every single transaction right so uh, this is the cancer that we, uh, we have uh, overwhelming our bloodstream at the moment so then, sort of long, long story semi-short, uh, I go to uh, my meetings uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the morning, and uh, I'm going to see other people's presentations and so on. And so there's a sort of theme that emerges from this conference, uh, which is uh, sort of twofold. One is that, uh, you know, for instance, in, in 2000, uh, what happened, uh, the year 2000, I think it was, um, the price of natural gas was deregulated, right? And deregulation in the North American market means quite something quite different from deregulation uh, would mean in the uh, uh, in any kind of sane definition, right? Uh, deregulation simply means a transfer of public assets to private hands uh, while retaining a monopoly and uh, thus uh, being able to basically um, fix prices without political control and therefore the politicians who are on the take don't get hit with the voter dissatisfaction. And this is the sad thing, of course, that has occurred, and I'll talk about this some other time, but this is a sad, sad effect that has come out of uh, the sort of uh, Hayekian uh, 
um, movement, uh, the, um, the Friedman movement, to uh, talk about uh, the efficiencies of the private system. Uh, all that's happened is uh, politicians have taken this idea over and, uh, you know, the sort of fascistic corporate slut, uh, sorry, state slut corporations have taken it over and they use these key buzzwords as an excuse uh, to go and privatize public assets uh, for their own profit uh, and everybody gets screwed, right? So, uh, again, I'm, I'm all for privatization, but, you know, it's never going to happen when the state's uh, in control. It's never going to happen in a productive way. It's just going to turn into the kind of mafia slash kleptocracy that Russia has turned into. So... Uh, that uh, uh, so uh, the, the, um, the natural gas prices were deregulated, which meant they were handed into a private monopoly outside of even remote political um, repercussions. And naturally, of course, the uh, the prices uh, jumped enormously. Right. So what happened? Well, uh, the the prices went up, uh, you know, savagely. Uh, natural gas, of course, a pretty high expensive utility overhead for a lot of chemical manufacturing and other manufacturing companies. So what did they have to do? Well, they had to go and rip out all of their plants and move them overseas because they simply couldn't compete in the uh, U.S. market. So, uh, you know, the people who did the privatization, sort of quote privatization thing, they ended up making a good deal of money. The workers got completely screwed. The, um, the plants moved overseas. And, of course, once they're overseas, you know, they ain't moving back, right? And they got all the tax incentives and so on that they could imagine uh, overseas. And uh, so basically the... Uh, uh, the uh, overseas vampires lured those with some blood still left in their veins overseas to be feasted on a little bit less catastrophically, and uh, uh, they left all these people behind with no jobs and no uh, uh, no future. Uh, this is how this kind of stuff works, right? So uh, massive uh, contractions within the uh, chemical manufacturing industry. Uh, this, I mean, others, I'm sure, too, but this is the one I was hearing about. Uh, with the result, of course, that uh, I mean, the business has been heavily regulated, heavily um, controlled through sort of, quote, environmental, quote, health and safety legislation and lots of price fixing and uh, skullduggery on the political side. And so, you know, these guys are just like, you know, punch drunk boxers reeling around hoping just to get through another quarter. Uh, their profits have been slashed. Uh, you know, this one guy is a pretty small company who's losing like a million dollars a day after the natural gas prices went up. And you can imagine what happened to those, uh, any of the poor bastards who still had any kind of manufacturing capacity in California during the, you know, electricity insanity of sort of three or four hundred percent during the sort of, quote, deregulation that occurred in the Enron scenario. But uh, what happens as well is they move plants overseas, they go international, they get all that skill uh, in place. And then, of course, they import the, um, the, uh, the mostly the finished goods back, right? Because when you're producing a lot of raw materials overseas, it makes a whole lot more sense to value-add the labor to the raw materials overseas and then ship the finished products back, right? You don't want to ship the raw materials over. It's too expensive. You haven't refined them. And then in uh, other countries, you can have more sensible disposal strategies and cheaper garbage strategies than you would have in North America. So when you move your plants overseas and you move your production of raw material overseas, naturally you're going to move all of your, you know, they, they go uh, along with that decision like the tail of a kite follows the kite. Uh, they go along and they say, um, okay, well, we'll move all of our finished uh, goods production overseas as well. And, of course, there's another uh, effect that occurs when a business goes through those kinds of wrenching changes. Um, which is that a lot of chemical engineers get laid off, right? Because people say to them, hey, do you feel like going to, uh, to Shanghai uh, and learning Cantonese to start working for a greatly reduced salary uh, in a culture that you've never heard of? Uh, you want to move your kids? And they're like, oh, not so much. And so when the jobs go overseas, it's not like the trained professionals go with them. And so what happens is 
the word spreads in the industry that if you're a chemical engineer, uh, you know, you have very little future. And there was quite a bit of conversation about this uh, at the conference, which was that uh, finding and attracting the top talent is, is very tough in North America because people don't want to go into chemical engineering because they know it's too volatile and jobs keep going overseas and they don't have much of a future. And, of course, when you're an engineer, you get kind of specialized. It's sort of like being a lawyer. You're a little bit tied to your field. So, of course, what's happening is there's a large number of highly skilled and highly qualified uh, overseas engineers, particularly in the Asian markets, right? They're producing very good engineers, which, again, is sort of a problem of the state educational system here and so on. So there was that conversation that now they're having trouble with the North American talent for the few plants that are left because nobody wants to go into the field. Again, all of this. And, of course, from... And this has effects in the long term, right? Because the best managers come, like, work their way up through the ranks, right? The best, I mean, I I guess I'm sort of a manager now, and I worked my way up through from the COBOL programming ranks. So um, I kind of know the the sort of shop floor, so to speak, in a way that I wouldn't know if I just got an MBA and said I knew something about software. There's something about knowing the thing itself that is very important and helpful. So the best and the best managers come from the ranks, right? So if the ranks thin out, well, you still have your existing managers who are good and they will be, you know, around for another 10 or 20 years. But after that, where are all the new good managers going to come from, right? They're not being, they've not risen through the ranks. They're not groomed. And that's sort of a, uh, a significant problem. So, but again, it's one of these things, instant profit, long-term harm, who cares? You know, 20 years down the future, if manufacturing productivity in the chemical market goes down, uh, who cares, right? And there are other sort of two, there were other two, two other factors that were talked about uh, at the, two of the other factors related to this that were talked about with regards to state power, though not explicitly with regards to state power, which was that, of course, European plants are much more productive than North American plants. And... There's a couple of reasons for that, but of course the primary one is that the North American healthcare costs, sorry, the American healthcare costs are kind of lunatic, right? So even with all of the stodgy, backward, uh, heavily unionized, hyper-socialized European markets, they're still getting some pretty good attraction uh, out of their European plants because basically what's happened is the manufacturers have shifted the cost of healthcare uh, to the tax base as a whole. Of course, the manufacturers in either the America or the Europe shouldn't be paying healthcare costs. Uh, that was something that was just put in place because you weren't allowed to raise wages during uh, the Second World War, and so people offered healthcare as a benefit, and then because the state is a non-taxable benefit, people kind of liked it. That's how it got embedded into our current environment. But uh, the infrastructure in Europe is much better. Uh, you can take a plane from sort of like the top of Norway down to the bottom of Italy, and it's all sort of very smooth and productive and positive. And uh, uh, the healthcare costs, so infrastructure and healthcare costs in, in Europe are a whole lot better. But most importantly, I sort of put this into the mix, although it didn't get me a lot of friends at the conference. I sort of said, well, that's all very true, but you're kind of missing out on a big one as well, which is whether or not you believe that the United States defense budget is actually to do with defense, which is certainly debatable, but the, um, the drag on the economy of the U.S. defense monster is pretty considerable, right? I mean... It's like you've got two employees. One's got a heroin habit and another one doesn't. Well, you don't have to be a great employee to be a better employee than the one who's got the heroin habit. So the fact that the European countries don't have this horrendous military-industrial overhead uh, complex overhead is pretty significant. And again, this just you know causes lots of screw-ups in the American economy. And of course, then people end up poor and people blame capitalism, right? That's sort of the, I mean, that's sort of inevitable, right? 
So there were lots of conversations about that. Uh, actually, while in the washroom, I heard two gentlemen, uh, two CEOs from uh, companies discussing uh, hiring, firing practices, and one of them was saying, well, you know, one of the things that was a real drag was it took us two years to close our plant in France when we wanted to move it. It took us two years of negotiating to close our plant. And why? Because uh, French jobs are heavily protected by law. There is lots of stories of French entrepreneurs who simply have to flee France to get anything done uh, because they simply don't have uh, the flexibility they need in order to be able to get things done in France. So, you know, one sort of example of this uh, that this guy was saying took two years to close the plant and they had to provide all these assurances. They had to give these massive layoffs and all of these costs, of course, directly passed along to the consumer and form no part of the calculations that I'm talking about uh, that I was talking about earlier. But uh, the, the guy was also saying, he said, you know, every, and every time like, I was opening up a plant in Beijing or whatever, I can't remember where it was. And so we had to have extensive conversations with every French employee at our plant saying, would you like to go to Beijing? And talking to this guy, uh, you know, in the, living in the south of France, do you want to go to like Beijing where it's minus nine million in the winter uh, and polluted and, and not fr <laughs> French, right? And, of course, nobody wanted to go, but you had to go through this whole process of putting the jobs out and offering them and waiting for responses and so on. And this kind of nonsense goes on in the States as well. If you want to get a job, they have to keep putting up these ads and so on. Again, just wastes of resources and time. So that's sort of another example of what uh, happens with uh, just this sort of massive waste of resources that occur. And there were lots of counterexamples from this conference wherein the capitalist or evil capitalist guys were all talking about, you know, the ways in which they've managed. They've tried to fight all of these drags on their productivity by coming up with incredibly innovative uses for waste materials and so on, all the kind of stuff that would be occurring in free market anyway, and, of course, which speaks to um, sort of these, quote, environmental issues quite a bit as well. But that's sort of another other examples of how state power you know, sort of crippling people and destroying their income and undermining productivity and just wrecking people's lives. And again, this is a lot of this stuff's kind of hidden, right? I see it sort of very clearly, for better or for worse, within my mind's eye. But uh, a lot of this stuff is just kind of hidden. We don't see it, right? It's the um, it's that sort of basic issue that that is talked about in many economics books. Um, Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson goes over this point a few million times, and not wrongly so, but uh, where he talks about it's the hidden liabilities, it's the hidden costs that you want to see uh, in order to be considered a decent eco economist. And so anyway, I'll sort of fast forward through some of this stuff, and we'll just sort of get to the end of the, the sort of whole journey that uh, I uh, finished my, I did my presentation, and then I finished, and I headed to the uh, airport, and I managed to get an earlier flight, right? So I, my flight was originally supposed to leave at 5.15, but I managed to get a 2.45 flight. Great, right? Yay. Get to get home earlier. Fantastic. But uh, sadly, when I landed in Toronto, it was quarter to five, and I get out of the um, uh, airport, and uh, there's a lineup of like 100 people to get a cab, and there are no cabs. Right? So... Uh, I actually got into an argument with the guy because some guy was coming by saying, you know, can I help you with a cab? Can I help you with a cab? Right. And this is the guy who was, I guess, running the official cab thing uh, with this lineup was saying, hey, that's illegal. Right. That's, and he turned to me and he said, you know, you're thinking of taking an illegal cab. And I said, well, the legal, there aren't any legal cabs. Who the, hell, who the hell are you to tell me that I can't take another cab? And he's like, well, it's illegal. And I said, yeah, you know, a lot of things in the Soviet Union were illegal, too, but that didn't make them wrong. 
And, of course, you know, what the hell did he care, right? I was just kind of pissed off at this point because I realized that I was just doomed, right? And why were there no cabs? Well, of course, cab use has been restricted in Toronto because the people who have the cabs want to keep the cab uh, cabs to a minimum. Uh, so they license and they pay people off. And, of course, then I have to the, the cab price is 120000 for a license or something in Toronto, which means I have to pay that much more for that. And um, uh, last but not least, of course, uh, there was some rain, and so the public roads were all screwed up, right? I don't know what the hell happens. There's construction and all this kind of crap. So, you know, so I had to, I had to end up sitting at the airport for two hours. I didn't wait in the lineup. I just went and uh, read uh, um, reading uh, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, which is a pretty good book. But um, uh, so, you know, then I'm stuck at the airport for two hours, and then I end up taking a cab. And uh, you have to pay my sort of pint of blood to the state for the privilege of getting into somebody else's car so that we don't get shot. And uh, so that's, you know, that's the story of the trip. I mean, there's lots more details I could get into that I won't. Uh, I went to see the bare naked ladies. There was this annoying service charges. I also had to get searched uh, to go into Radio City Music Hall. Um, and so all of these kinds of things, they sort of all come together in a way, if that sort of makes any sense. And uh, there's just massive amounts of time and overhead, right, and wasted time and wasted resources and stolen money and all of this, right? This is all late, decadent, corrupt, destructive, violent, undermining, unprofitable, anti-business, anti-freedom, decaying uh, civilization. So, so all of these things contribute to this uh, decay and poverty that is so endemic within our culture and civilization. And I just sort of wanted to point that out, right? I mean, it's partly, you know, it's a maybe a grindingly dull uh, tale, of what uh, was occurring for me on my trip. But I think what is helpful is just to kind of understand what occurs within your trips and, and your life and how all of these costs, whether you travel or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you travel or not. All of these costs are going to get allocated anyway, right? They're, they're, you're gonna, you have to pay for my trip anyway, right? Because I sell my software, which I have to spend, I have to charge more for to pay for all of this nonsense. And I sell it to manufacturing plants who then have to pass the cost along to you. And we hope that they save money, and they will and all that. But uh, fundamentally, um, they're then spending money on my software to make money, which then is half stolen by the government rather than coming up with other stuff. And so overall, uh, you end up having to pay for this, right? Everything that I'm talking about, you as the end consumer have to pay for. So, you know, if you're wondering why you're just sort of not able to get ahead in life, it's because 90% of your goddamn money is being taken by thugs with guns. Right. It shouldn't be that hard to figure out. You know, if you cut your your diet, your calories down by 90 percent. Right. I mean, obviously, you're going to get a little a little pinched. Right. <laughs> obviously, you're going to get a little hungry. And so I just sort of wanted to point these things out that, uh, you know, the 90 percent is increasing. It doesn't even count things like the national debt and the dilution of money through inflation and so on. I'm just sort of talking about the basics. But I think it's just important to understand you know, how little the economy is actually working and how easily things like if people wanted to solve problems like poverty and so on and uh, people not being able to afford, you know, medical procedures, ah, easy peasy, right? Just stop people taking 90% of the money in the economy and, uh, you know, everything would be perfectly fine. No poverty, everybody be able to afford everything, people would be able to afford their, their uh, education for their kids and medical procedures and all this kind of crap, but uh, nobody ever wants to do that because there's too, many money, there's too much money in taking it all rather than in... Um, uh, letting people be free. So thank you so much for listening. I want your money too. Thank you so much for donations that I'm sure will be coming my way any day now. And uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to all the new listeners. It's very exciting how we're growing. Thank you so much.